It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. Just a little parenting thing where uh, our son's doing middle school rugby. So we had a small tournament this afternoon. And um, I honestly didn't really know the rules of rugby before then, other than you, I knew you couldn't do a forward pass. And uh, it was just fun watching him grow up, uh, you know. As, as Katie likes to say, he's our little baby and uh, he's not really little anymore or a baby, but um, it's uh, it's fun to just sort of see see your children grow and develop and uh, get new skills and have new interests and things. And I mean, I think at this point last year, if you'd said, it, is he going to be playing rugby? I don't think he would have even know what was going on. So it's um, it's just a joy It's uh, to watch your kids grow and, uh, and put some purpose to what we're doing here, you know, making sure there's a, a, a nation for them in the future. So how was your week? Uh, it was pretty good. Um, the family's kind of been sick. Vanessa and I have been battling a bug and trying to work. And I spent two days in the classroom last week um, as a watchdog at Haymark Ele- Elementary for my girls. Uh, one day with Sadie and one day with Eleanor. And uh, it's a lot. Man, those teachers do not get paid enough. I, I, mm-hmm. it's, it's insane. Like They have too many kids in the classroom, which... I, I asked pretty much every teacher I came in contact with. I'm like, what do you think the number one problem the education system has? And they kind of like sat and they looked at me and they thought about it. And I go, let me just ask you a question. Do you think that uh, if we lowered the amount of kids in the classroom and we built more schools, that would help the problem? And they were like, oh my God, yes, that's it. And I say this standing like 20 feet away from two trailers that the school has already because they can't fit the kids inside the school because every school in Northern Virginia is overcrowded. Um, but, uh, every, every five seconds, it feels like in the classroom, their teacher is having to listen to three different kids at the same Mm -hmm. time, ask them questions. (laughs) It's just, and like the patience that the teachers have, like, it's just, it's impressive. I told, I, on my second day when I was leaving, I told, uh, Eleanor's teacher, I was like, I watched uh, Miss uh, Sadie's teacher yesterday, and I watched you today, and I go, I'm just amazed because I'm annoyed, and they're not bothering me. You know, they're they're not asking me questions, so I can only imagine how you feel. And she just gave me one of those smiles, and like, yep, it's just part of the job. <laughs> but you know, I mean, they do they do a fantastic job. It's impressive, it really is. Um, and that's why I try to spend as much time in the classroom to help as as possible because I know mm-hmm. they need it. <laughs> oh man, yeah, no, I mean, teachers do a lot. It's it's an important job, and uh, I don't. I don't I don't know if you could ever pay them enough. Well, see, that's the thing is like everybody's talking about teacher pay and whatnot. And it's like, well, I think it's more of a quality of life thing. You know, from the teachers that I've talked to that have left the profession, it's not because, yes, it would be nice if they got paid more, but only because the job has become that difficult. If you made the job easier by hiring more teachers and building more schools and, you know, setting a requirement for kids in the classroom, um, um, you know. I think that the quality of life goes up and you don't have to pay them as much anymore. Like teachers, I don't think people don't get into teaching for the money, you know, like right. it's not no, what it's they're looking kids. for. They're looking for money and and now because their job has gotten so hard and they're just kind of miserable. And they're like, if you don't pay me more, I'm leaving, you know, cause I could go make more outside of this. And, you know, it's just such a silly thing for us to do as a governing body everywhere, you know, just like, well, let's just, throw money at the problem let's just pay them more their job has gotten harder because we have 
not done a good enough job of keeping up with the growth of our population and the infrastructure that we need because schools are basically infrastructure, you know, yeah. and, you know, so let's just throw money at the problem. But if you actually sat down and you spoke with teachers, you'd, you'd be surprised. That's not the, the number one thing that they're focused on. They love teaching. They love, you know, shaping kids and like helping them grow. Um, it's just a passion and, mm -hmm. you know, it's just a bad side effect that it's gotten as bad as it has. Yeah. The, the quality of life is definitely part of that. Um, so, uh, you had sent me this, this article, not to shift gears too much, but this article on modern founderism. So, uh, I, I read it and, um, the, the gist I got was that we have to abandon the founding fathers because they're just not good enough for us anymore. And... <laughs> yeah. So this was an article, um, our friend Stephen Kent actually sent me on Friday and it was making its, uh, its rounds around Twitter. I saw like, uh, the political pundits kind of talking about it and, uh, it's Forget the Founding Fathers by Michael Lind on Compact. And yeah, it is this gist of we don't we shouldn't pay attention to our founding fathers. Now I took away, I'm like, what I read from this is they just kind of want to be able to like build their own government and do their mm -hmm. own things and not have to worry about the restraints of the principles the ideas that our founding fathers had you know the separation of powers the checks and balances you know the small government <laughs> the limited powers um i i feel what did you take away from it so i i kind of got that sense of like they it's an idea to, to sort of break things down like where well oh we're in such a bad spot and the reason we're in a bad spot is because we have these bad ideas and so we should just get rid of those bad ideas um, but to me, that's very much of the, like the, the quote, critical theories, uh, that, that term that gets bandied around, like where you're basically trying to critique something to death, where you say like, look, um, I can, I can scientifically show that like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. So therefore, and we can prove, we, you know, we can say like, well, the result here at this point was bad. So we should throw everything else away. And I think it's a, it's a total misreading of it. I think, um, a, I would say the British tradition that this is one of the, one of the key data points is that the British people have no tradition of like looking back on their founders. And I think that's total nonsense. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like the whole monarchy is its own sort of tradition. They've got the Kings, like they look back on their found founders on people in charge. And they say like, these are great people. Um, or, you know, these are flawed people. We're going to learn from them, but we're not going to throw away our entire system. And you've seen that, like it's, it's evolved where the monarchy is now kind of uh, more ceremonial in some senses, but you know, it's a, it's a key part of the, the, the system where, you know, the king just kind of starts up parliament. Um, so there's like, there's a, there's an aspect of, of like the British society where they, they have this foundation that they, they lean onto and then it lets them um, experiment with other stuff. And I think, so I, I think like that's, I, I would kind of disagree that like the, the British don't have some people to look back onto. Um, and then he, he kind of, he kind of goes through other things. Like he talks about Marxists and stuff and like they've, um, Marx, Lenin, Stalin, like people that they look up to. So, um, I didn't quite get that. And sort of saying like, so are we, are we communists because we have people we look back to like every society is people they look back to. Everyone has some kind of history that they go to. Um, and like, this is a key bit of this ancient story, the, the, the Aeneid, where the, the city of Troy is sacked by the Greeks and the Trojans have nothing. And so Aeneas leaves Troy 
to go start a new place. But what does he carry with him? He carries his like his household gods. He carries his civilization with him. Like what little remnants of like that he goes to start something. So I think it's just very inhumane to say like, oh, we can just wipe the slate clean and have nothing and start from scratch. Where um, that would never be the case because there's always we're always building on top of something. Um, I was explaining to my son, my children, not my children, sorry, I'm not the kind of children, my students in my programming class, like, um, you know, every programming language you're learning, like you're you're building on what someone else did. And there's this phrase, I'm sure it's not just a programming phrase, but like standing on the shoulders of giants. And, you know, politics, civilization is like that. Like, we only get to where we are today because we're standing on who came before us, you know, flaws, warts and all. Um, so, uh, yeah, I could say I could imagine John Adams, and there's a quote in John Adams like, "Oh, this is going to be some um, some we'll civilization see. where uh, society is uh, sprung from the the lightning bolt of Ben Franklin and out pops George Washington." Um, no, I, I don't even think the John Adams quote. I, let me find that because I didn't even. He's, he's commentingly enough. I could imagine him saying that, but like I think, but I, I didn't feel like it. It actually helped his argument. Like I mean, I think <clears> I think you have to, you have to want it to be that argument to think it helps your argument you know like i don't feel yeah, like no, the context I, I of think that like quote that's a very, has anything like, to do with it <laughs> that's a very like tongue-in-cheek thing you would say i think it was more ironic of like you know people are going to forget about me right but yes and and we know that john adams probably was saying that every day they were like ah i'm a, I'm a one-term president they're not even going to remember me i kept us out of war with france nobody cares <laughs> yeah and then you I get know no he, respect they give no respect that's no respect. that's john adams to me i get no respect <laughs> um and then there's a there's a bit about like how franklin or now uh jefferson wanted this this insignia to have two teutonic heroes and i don't remember the names if you remember that's like haggis or something um and it, and it failed and it's like oh well see he was just trying to to push teutonic heraldry or something like no People realized it was silly, so they got rid of it. They didn't want it. I mean, like, that's part of the whole process. Like, you float an idea, you see if people agree with you, and if, it, if you don't get enough people to agree with you, you just, you don't have the idea. Like, that's, that's democracy in a nutshell, if you will. But, like, that's, it's ridiculous to, like, to say, like, well, because someone had a crazy idea that, that didn't get get passed, we should throw everything away. Like, I say that's, that's a, actually a, a, an incentive to say, like, actually, it worked because it was a crazy idea. We didn't do it. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, so there's. There's a quote at the end by John Jay, not John Jay, John Hay. I had this mistake earlier today. Um, and it, so I'll, I'll read the quote and then I'll talk about it. Um, the past gives no clue to the future. The fathers, where they are, and the prophets, do they live forever? We are ourselves the fathers. We are ourselves the prophets. The questions that put to us that are put to us, we must answer without delay, without help, for the Sphinx allows no one to pass. And so, like, so just for context, who John Hay was, he was the private secretary of Abraham Lincoln, um, and he served in the McKinley assassination, or not in the assassination, he served in the McKinley uh, administration. So, to give context to this, and they kind of talk about a little bit in articles um, or in the article about how um, we started with this limited or we had this limited government um, and then we get to we get to the the they talk about the Lochner era, which really starts to expand corporate rights 
and this bigger, broader government. And Hay was kind of part of that in the whole Lincoln, you know, after the Civil War. Um, that's when the 14th Amendment was passed, which was used a lot during the Lochner era to expand the rights of corporations or kind of like create this idea that corporations had rights. Um, and of course, they're not, they want us to forget the past because mm -hmm. in the past, at the beginning, there was no corporate rights, <laughs> right? Like there was no such thing as a corporate right. There was, there was, you know, this idea that uh, corporations had speech or any of that type of stuff had not even come across any legislation at all. Um, and, you know, so, but I, I think what, like, I understand where Hayes coming from with this question, with what he says here is like, we, we ourselves are the the fathers. We ourselves are the prophets because he's part of the government. He's one of the mm -hmm. ones that has to make the decisions. He's part of the inside crew. And they you've got to be confident. You've got to know what, what to decide. But how do you come to those decisions is what's most important. And look at his boss, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln looked back to the Federalist Papers. Okay. He looked back to the Constitution to find his answers. You know, he looked back to our founders. Um, and it's how do how do you come to be prepared? How do you if you want to be be the father, you have to first be the son. OK, and you can't learn from your father if you've forgotten him. You know, if you've mm -hmm. just abandoned the founding fathers, there's nothing to learn from. There's no foundation. And you're going to be very unprepared to make difficult decisions in the future because, look, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. It power is power. And people fight and tug over it. And if you look back at how we handled things in the past, you'll you'll be able to avoid bad decisions and maybe make better decisions in the future. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's a little ridiculous that we would just be like, hey, you know, this whole thing that we love, America, and all those people that like, you know, made it, let's just Let's forget about them. We don't really need them. What, what do we care what James Madison thinks about corporate rights? Well, I care. I care. <laughs> and it's not like you don't have to. It's not like you have to find something that our founders talked about specific to an issue today because the issues are a little bit different. But you can find something that they talked about that applies to the issue today and like how they were thinking about it and what what did they learn? Why? Why were they important? Because they looked back too. They looked at the Romans. They looked at the Greeks. You know, they looked at the uh, the British Empire, and they built this government off of all of that information. You know, they didn't just make it up. They themselves were not the prophets. They were the sons, and then they became the fathers through their acts. Well, that's a good point. That the whole sons and fathers, and like where you come from, because I think one of the uh, the themes in the article is that well. We didn't talk about our founding fathers at the beginning. We didn't talk about them until like, you know, I think the 1950s is kind of when he starts. The, but I think like that's because we didn't label they're, they're them so out of fathers, but they yeah, were but talked about all the time. <laughs> but that's also because like there was they were much fresher in our minds. Like you kind of as people move out of our minds, we have to do more in order to remember them. So it would not make sense to really talk about the founding fathers in Abraham Lincoln's time because they would have been fresh out of still fresh in everyone's minds. And it would, you know, it was only a couple of generations. Um, and it, to me, it would make perfect sense that, you know, only 200 years after your country was founded, then do you start have to sort of doing some more labels 
in order to help people remember like it's 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 not a label that you can rally around but it's in this sense it's a label that you can help use to teach it's a teaching tool so like these are the founding fathers these are what was important because um you know if you don't like i said if you don't you learn from your father but your father also has a responsibility to teach their son and so that's in a that's in a way for the the father to say like these are the things that are important to us son daughter don't forget these as you go on to your the rest of your life like remember the founding fathers it's that just a a, a memory device that then sort of opens up everything because it isn't as fresh in our minds it isn't um as uh as clear as it was you know it's you know people forget stuff that's just humanity like there so that's the key thing about like us having to teach the next generation and so that i think that's why you could that's that's a better argument for why you should start seeing the word founding fathers uh, more so in sort of quote modern history. Um, not because it was an effort to rally around this and to exclude people, but it was an effort in order to teach everyone like this is what's important. This is what the American ideal um, is the key part of the American ideal in terms of understanding where, who we are and where we come from. Yeah, I mean, you can't, um, you can't have a world without a past. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, I just don't think it's a very successful world. You know, it's like, it'd be like a child, like raising itself, you know, like what is, what is they going to learn from? They're going to have to, they're going to make all of those mistakes over again. Like I never burned my hand on the stove, right. As a kid, because I was taught that the stove is hot before I ever put my hand on it. I knew that that stove was hot and that I knew that because my parents taught me that. Because somewhere along the line, somebody put their hand on that stove. <laughs> you know, and great, like, great, great, great grandpa Mayhew did it. And, <laughs> and but the that's the advantage. Like that's the advantage of having parents. That's the advantage of having a father. You know, like is is to be able to learn those lessons without making those mistakes. And I just I don't see a reason. I, I the, just the concept alone and the first paragraph of like, we don't, we don't need them. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just, I don't comprehend. Um, it's like, I was, so I'll get to it later, but I'm reading the, uh, the fatal conceit by Hayek and basically in there at some point, he's like, intellectuals get really get so smart. They become dumb, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll find the quote later, but you know, and I, I say that a lot. I'm like the smartest people, you know, are probably also some of the dumbest people, you know, like you just, you get to a point where you rationalize everything and you kind of think that, you know, everything, but you forget why, you know, everything, right. Or you, you know, and that's kind of the point Hayek is making is like, yeah, people will get to this point where they kind of want to create this new world order, uh, you know, not his words, yeah. but in, in this way. And they forget that the reason that they are so smart is because of everything that they that has happened in the past. You can't just throw it away. No, no, you can't. And uh, you know, it's a it's a warning to us that we should uh, not forget where we came from. Absolutely. Um, so in the news this week, besides this article, there was uh, some, you know, there's a lot going on, but uh, in Congress. Our friend George Santos, he's got a little scandal going on up there in New York. Uh, John, have, did you read about that? Not not just a scandal. It sounds like it's a full-on uh, bunch of corruption. So if you're not familiar, uh, George Santos is 
being investigated for campaign finance issues and campaign finance is an is a issue that we'd like to talk about on this campaign. Um, and some of the key findings that that were released were he spent money on OnlyFans, he spent money on Sephora. Um, so you know, like kind of improper use of campaign funds. So like that's not good. You know, if someone donates money to your to your campaign, really you should be spent for the campaign. Now maybe you could argue, well, the Sephora is for makeup for your, you know, TV appearances and stuff. So maybe, but but probably not only he he looks like he wears a lot of makeup, doesn't he? Um, they all I think they all kind of do. Yeah, <laughs> I'm being honest. Um, but the other thing was this whole straw donor um scheme that he had. So um, you know, it's really easy to start a company, you know, you just file some paperwork. Um, and so he had a couple of co companies that he was sort of quote doing business under. And I think he I think he he'd so some of the rules are if you don't have enough business, you actually don't have to like um, document it anywhere. So I don't know if he'd actually documented them in any of his filings at some point. But um, as they were, as the committee, the ethics committee was looking over these, the uh, bank statements for both these campaigns, like his consulting company would get a $250,000 check. And then pretty much the next day, most of it go to his campaign. So it was just kind of like, you know, again, not necessarily in and of itself sketchy because if you're trying to run for Congress as Jeff, you know, Joe, Jeff and I, we like to say like, it takes a lot of money um, or people think it takes a lot of money. And uh, it does, you know, if you're again, like if this is your job and you get paid, like I would take some of that money and put in a camp congressional campaign if I knew it would help me. So like, I think that in and of itself is not, not the, the thing, but there's document, there's proof or, you know, records that show that the person who, who had the consulting agreement really thought it was a campaign contribution. Um, and I think even at some point they thought it was going to be like a, it was one of those donations was like to his super PAC that was associated with him. So that's also sketchy because the super PAC is not supposed to coordinate with the can candidate. So if you're donating to the candidate so that it goes to the super PAC, I we talked about also, that last week. Probably. Uh, <laughs> so it's just, it's just kind of like, you know, real, real run of the mill grift, really. You know, just well, I mean, the average grift. And I think that's my biggest, know. my biggest issue with can with the campaign finance laws is like, you know, some people are like, I think that it's good. Like I, and look, of course, if you're in politics, of course you think it's good there. That just, it brings more money in. But the problem is, is, is the rules are set up in a way that encourages bad people to circumvent them, you know, mm -hmm. like to, to take advantage of them. It's just, it's very easy to do. Um, there's very little transparency once you get into it and you just, you're inviting corruption, you know, and it, it's not again like my my ideas last week is like I'm not trying to like throw all the money of politics away. I'm mm -hmm. just trying to like bring it into the light. You right. know, like let let people know what's really going on and who's paying for these things, you know? Like why should George Santos try to have to funnel the money from here to here to get the campaign donation? Let's just make that guy who really wants to pay for his campaign, which I believe I have to go back and read the articles again, but wasn't that guy from Miami, by the way? Oh yeah, out, out of the yeah. district. Yeah. So like completely out of the district, trying to influence something in New York, right? Mm -hmm. And and again, big problem with the system. But you know, let's let the people of New York know that George Santos is listening to a lawyer or whoever it was from Miami instead of them, because then he'll be less likely to be reelected. Because it doesn't, you know, at, when. You look up the campaign finance filings and you see like one name for like $250,000 from Miami, you're going to go, whoa, 
And then people can start asking him questions about that. But mm -hmm. you can't find this stuff unless an investigation happens like this. Or Well, no, because it, it would just under the, the charade that he's really wealthy and is very successful businessman. But it's not a successful business. He's a successful grifter yes. where he's able to steer money into an account that he controls and then shift it to another account he controls. Like, you know, there's no skill in that. Uh, and it's not not good representation for that. Um, and those are the people that get in the office because yeah. – and in a, you say that there's no skill in that, but in reality, there actually is a little bit of skill in that. You have to like set aside your morals to be able <laughs> to do that. <laughs> like, and so like right off the bat, like if you want to compete, you got to know that everybody else in that system is cheating. So you're either going in at a disadvantage or you're going in. Knowing that you're, and I take that back. Not everybody in the system is cheating. That's yeah. that's a mistake. That's definitely not happening. But a lot, <laughs> I'm sure a lot are. And mm -hmm. it, you know, it's only we. Eric Adams last week. Um, now George Santos, which I mean, that was only inevitable. I'm sure there'll be more. There's campaign finance violations all the time. Um, it's just whether we hear about them or not, um, and how big they are, and if right. they get investigated thoroughly, um. But yeah, it's it's a big problem. Well, and part of it too is, you know, if you think about it, George Santos is not quote part of the establishment. He's a he won a primary and um didn't make a lot of friends in Congress. So people are kind of looking out to get him. And uh, Eric Adams was a sort of I think he was a pretty much a political unknown, um, kind of weirdly won the primary in a very crowded field, was able to kind of build the right coalition, um, but definitely not sort of an, an establishment a New York politician. So you can you can also say like, well. There's also the people who are, who are running the grifts and, uh, you know, who've got the support of people around them. So you could also say, like, it's all they're going after those who are not in the, uh, the, the sort of the main orbit of any of the well groups. And that that brings up another idea or theory about it is like. If. If you are outside of the 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 establishment and like you get close to power and they're like, mm -hmm. Hey, you know what? Everybody does this. You can do this thing. And they tell you to do it. Cause I feel like, I feel like we got advice that maybe, you know, it, it, it when you're getting advice, it's like, talk the money. I, I feel like that's bad advice. Um, and I can imagine people in the system being like, yeah, everybody does this. George, dude, just, have them write the check to your consultant firm and then write the check from your consultant firm to the pack or whatever it was. Um, I feel like, you know, that is legitimate advice that can come from a local official or whatever. And if you are outside of the realm, you may not know. And if you're naive or just lazy and you don't bother to like research it or find out, you just trust this person. Now you've like, you've committed a, a crime mm -hmm. and now they have something to like, hold over your head and make you yeah. do stuff with you know like <laughs> and i think santos wasn't wanted from day one from i don't i don't feel like the republican establishment the extreme wings of the republican party nobody really wanted him there he was just a guy who managed the grift he saw the grift and he's like i'm gonna grift the grifters mm -hmm. and yeah. he managed to get himself some power but at the end of the day he's doesn't have enough power to stay there and they're gonna uh, clearly they found out <laughs> well yeah and he's not running for election now because of this and i think there's probably going to be some effort to get rid of him too they um, have to get rid of him like i mean i can't believe yeah. he's still in congress 
well you know it's, these yeah. things take time these things take yeah. time um no like I, I mean like again like i know a person who was running for congress like a, a decade and a half ago he had a very successful company and he was he had mentioned to me as i was running he's like oh yeah I've, you know i would basically take money from my company because it was mine it would one in one account and i would then put it in my campaign because i could and like that's totally listed that's that's permissible because it's your own funds at the end of the end of the day because you're the you know the owner of a company and those general funds are technically yours and then you can move them to yourself as a payout you know pay the taxes or whatever you know do that legally and then it's available for your campaign so like again like that's the mechanism that's real and then the bad advice is like well you know instead of instead of it being a legitimate business it's just sort of a consulting company um and uh, I, I was like reading the contract or something. It was like a business contract to like potentially bring in more business for this person. So like so vague and nondescript. <laughs> and, and like the article is like, I don't, we don't know if, if he even did that. Um, but and then some of the other advice I got was like, I had a person helping me and he's like, okay, so what you got to do is you get, is there some like family member you trust? And I was like, I think I got someone. And he's like, okay, so, so what you got to do is you got to get that person, you know, don't talk to them after this. But you get them to start a super PAC for you. And then you fundraise in the super PAC. And at this point, I guess I having trouble raising money from my campaign just like regularly. So I, I didn't know any rich people that could fund a super PAC. But like that was the advice I got was to like basically find some family member that I could so like I that I trusted that could run this. But, you know, I wouldn't talk to them anymore because it would be collusion uh, between a, a PAC and, and myself um but just you know try to do that and then fundraise into that and then and then they could pay for stuff and he's like oh yeah so like at some point we'll get a campaign bus and the super PAC can pay for that and I was like how is that not the super PAC actually campaigning f with me because like am I just gonna walk up one day and a bus appears in my driveway and then I sort of like step into the bus and it just sort of drives on its own and then I get out where it <laughs> like, doesn't doesn't make any sense but like that's like that's the kind of advice you get especially from people who aren't as ex as experienced um, I hate to say, like, really don't have the, the skin in the game other than like making sure the checks get cashed to them. Um, like they give you stupid, stupid ideas and stupid advice that could lead you into making bad decisions down the road. Um, so yeah. I mean, you know. the, I, I told you the first time, the first thing I was told after it wasn't my time was that I needed to start a pack. Like, and it's like, because I, I was supposed to start the PAC before I was running the Congress and establish the PAC and then run for Congress later. And then that PAC would then fund me. And it's like, where's the disconnection of coordination between the PACs if I'm literally, I mean, everybody, we have in Virginia, it's the spe spirit of Virginia PAC. It's the Yunkin PAC, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's so obvious. Um, and but his name is on the ballot, so he can do that. Like, he's, you know... And Virginia has their own weird campaign yes. laws. Yes, but I mean, and that's that's a different story. But again, it is it's sketchy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's just sketchy. Um, At the very least. So speaking of spirit of Virginia, and Glenn Youngkin was thinking of running for president until the election. Have Have you been following the presidential election, <laughs> or are you are you practicing what you preach and focusing on more important things? Um. The second one. <laughs> what are those more important things, Jeff, that people should be focused on? I mean, you have to be focused on Congress. Like if you if if you're a citizen of the United States and you're a voter, your responsibility is to the House. Like that is your number one focus. Yes, you have a vote in the presidency. And yes, it is important. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like I just feel like it consumes the nation everywhere, yeah. all over the place. And it, it sucks all of the air out of the room. And in reality, it's it's less important. It it just is. Like that president, and we talked about it last week, he's to deal with the 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 elites, you know, the the upper echelon of society, the Elon Musk, the um Steve Jobs, or I guess Steve, not Steve Jobs. My apologies, Steve. The ghost of Steve Jobs. Uh, the ghost of Steve Jobs. Um Tim Cook, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Mark Zuckerberg, whoever, the, the people that have money. Um, but the House is for the people, and mm-hmm. it is the closest that you're going to get to your federal power. And if you are worried about your federal government, which, let's face it, we are, that's where you should be focused. You should be you know, trying to find somebody that, A, understands what Congress's responsibilities are, um, B, like – listens to the district that they live in but see and most importantly doesn't just cater to the to the to the winds to the to the whims of the yeah. of the citizens right like somebody that like if they know their job and they're confident in what their responsibilities are yes they listen to the citizens but they speak back to them and they go hey you know maybe that's not a good idea you know maybe maybe congress should stand up to the executive branch Maybe we should break through the whole Republican-Democrat thing and forget about fighting amongst ourselves and actually fight back against the executive because the executive has grown far too large and far too powerful, and we need to curtail that. Congress needs to step up, and and you know, let's let's also spread that a little bit further and say the court as well the supreme court you know both the executive and the supreme court have too much power and it's and it's a lot because congress hasn't been doing their job and why has the congress not been doing their job because citizens haven't been doing their job we haven't been focused on congress we've been focused on the presidency every 4 years we are just zoomed and it's not even every 4 years it's like literally every year the moment that the election finishes we're already talking about the next president but we never seem to be talking about our local representatives, and there's a varying factors for that. A lot, you know, the disappearing local news would be part mm-hmm. of that. Um, but I just think at the end of the day, citizens are busy and they're tired, and it's just easier to vote for one person. That's so right. Like, it's, yeah. it's a three-year be- beauty contest. <laughs> so my thing is, if you only want to vote for one person, make sure it's your congressional rep. Abstain from the presidential race. You know, and the next thing, if you're a citizen, you want to take your your rights, you know, and make sure that you're focused in the right place is only vote for people that you voted for in the primary or only vote in a general election if you voted in the primary election. Let's put it that way, because if you didn't vote for the primary election, you're not voting your power. You're not voting mm-hmm. your voice. You're voting somebody else's voice and somebody else's power. Um, and how do you know that that's what you really wanted if you didn't pay attention during primary season? You know, it, I think in our district, it was about 16,000 people voted in the primary yeah. and 400,000 people voted in the general. Think about that. 16,000 people decided who the, you know, 400,000 people got to vote for. And, right. you know, the 400,000 people that voted how do they even know that that person represents them they or that there weren't better candidates to represent them 
Well, they, yeah, they don't because they're not plugged. They're not plugged in the system. I mean, like that's you talk about people being busy. Like that's that is certainly part of the problem. And it's much easier to just pay attention to the one contest to rule them all because that's what the national media is talking about. And uh, you know, you're not getting the same kind of flavor. The local, um, I would bet most people probably don't know who the representative is, uh, other than you know, just because you should not be voting. Like at the end of the day, like and, and look, I'm not. I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but let let's look at the let's look at the world that we live in, and let's all acknowledge that we all complain about Congress. We all complain mm -hmm. about the president. We all complain that things aren't going well. Who has the power in this country? It's the voters, and we're just not doing a good enough job. At the end of the day, we're not voting in the right people. The people, the people that they're going to the ballot box and they're just being shuttled there, you know, and then dropped off, and they're picking red or blue, and it's mm -hmm. not working like we've we've got to stop doing it and do something different and i think the thing that we have to do different is um i was talking about this the other day there's positive power and there's negative power and when you are voting for somebody in a general election just because you don't like the other guy you're giving that other person positive power they're taking your vote as positive they're taking your vote as a mandate that the people want them to do their thing. Yep. But that's not really the case, is it? Because you didn't really vote for that person. You actually voted against somebody else. So if you're going to the ballot box and you're only voting against somebody, my suggestion to you is use your negative power. Don't vote. And I know people would be like, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Look, somebody's got to start. Like, you there there are two types of power positive and negative this positive power isn't working because it's misleading the people in office and they're using your power against you they're taking it and they're saying you voted for me so you want me to do all these things and you're back here going no i voted against that person i really don't want you to do anything you're just a placeholder till the next election mm -hmm. but they don't see it that way the only way to get them to see it that way is to not vote and it doesn't have to be not showing up to the polls. It could be literally casting a blank ballot, like, uh, you know, and I, and I think if anything, that'd be more powerful where you have someone who doesn't get a vote because it shows like there's uh, some kind of, uh, you know, that's, that's more of a negative than sort of positively voting against someone. Yeah. Well, and I, I did that when I voted in our local elections, I voted for two people and I left the rest of them blank. Because I didn't think anybody in those elections deserved to be voted for. And I wasn't going to vote. I'm not voting against people. Plain and simple. I will vote for somebody. And if you don't put somebody on my ballot to vote for, then I'm not voting. And that's what every single disenfranchised voter should be calling their local parties. Like that. That's the number one thing you can do is if you are in Prince William County, call, find your email for – democratic party or the republican party and go look if you don't start putting somebody on the ballot that i can vote for i'm not voting anymore stop emailing me stop texting me stop asking me for money until you do your job of putting quality people on the ballot that actually know what they're doing instead of grifters trying to make money then i'm out i'm done you know and then sure you know what maybe you lose the election maybe maybe the other guy wins but they win with a lot less votes. And you know what you have now? Like, it's, let's throw out a theory here. Our election, uh, District 10, 400,000 or so people. 
um, voted. I think it was like eight hundred, almost eight hundred thousand in the district. So let's say that half of the people take my advice, and now you only have two hundred thousand people that voted for that election, and half of those people voted, fifty-one uh, percent voted for the the Democrat, and the Democrat wins office, but they won office with only like. 10% of their district voting for them. They mm -hmm. cannot get to office and go, well, they wanted this. The right. president can't get up there and go, well, the people voted Congress red or blue to match me so I can do this. And you can look at the numbers and you go, no, they didn't. They did not vote for this. Look at the numbers. The numbers are against you. Um, you, you just, you barely got somebody in because there was no other viable option. Yeah. No, it's powerful. And I think it's something, some, I think it's good to give people that option. I think people just assume that you, when you go to the ballot box, you got to put, put a checkbox next to everything. Um, but I think, no, you definitely don't have to. So have you, uh, what have you been reading this past week as you were? Uh, free time? I've been reading a lot. So I've been here. I don't know if I can get it in here. I got my my these are jefferson and madison letters so i've been reading those back and forth so julia went on to founders online for me and printed them all out printed them all like, oh nice there's like a thousand of them we're like halfway through and then oh, just a little light studying here um this is dodge versus ford uh virginia state board pharmacy versus virginia citizens council buckley v vallejo mcconnell v fpc and Citizens United, just 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 brushing up, you know. By reading, right <laughs> And then the book is uh, "The Fatal Conceit" by Hayek, and so this is a fantastic book, by the way. You'll have to read it. Um, I've read um, "The Road to Serfdom." I like that one a lot. Yeah, I read that last year, the year before. That is very good. Um, let me read you this quote here. To the naive mind that can conceive of order only as the product of deliberate arrangement, it may seem absurd that the com in complex conditions, order and adaptation to the unknown can be achieved more effectively by decentralizing decisions, and that a division of authority will actually extend the possibility of overall order, yet that decentralization actually leads to more information being taken into account. Boom. What do you think that means? So uh, many hands make light work. I mean, it's basically just saying that if you, instead of having to put the burden of decision-making on one single point, if you actually spread it out, you get more people being able to take in more information and then distilling that and then sort of bubbling up the key things so that the better decisions get made overall. Um, so to, to me, that's uh a, a, a strong argument in favor of Republican, smaller Republican government. Unkempt House. That's what that says. Right <clears> there. <throat> that says by expanding the House, bringing more people, more of the citizenry into the House, you're going to have more information in the House. You know, that's what we talk about, too. Uh, we've talked about on the show before is the people in Congress don't know the you know, detailed information they need to know about all the industries that they oversee, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because there's only 435 of them. Right. <laughs> you know, there's just, there's so much in the world of 330 million citizens that how could 435 million, 435 people really know all that information? 
And it, the only way to bring to get to know more is to bring more people into the body to decentralize it. You bring more information into account. Um, high and then like half of them are lawyers too, you know. And like, what do, what do lawyers know other than well, FEC Bruce McConnell? Well, and but that's exactly it, right? Why are half of them lawyers? Because you need to be a lawyer to circumvent the campaign finance laws or to follow <laughs> them and and to like get into the system. You don't need those techie guys. <laughs> well, tech's taking over everything. So, you know, at some point, it'll just be a bunch of chat GPT operators that are able to, uh, to run this country. <laughs> that will be, that's, you know what? I think that's what Congress really wants. They were like, they just, they were like, you know what? We don't even need us here anymore. Let's just leave the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader and then everything else will just be a chat GPT bot, you know, like we'll just centralize power as much as possible. But you send in a constituent email and you just get a chat GPT response. Like, <laughs> hey, Jeff, yes, expand the house. Here's reason, 10 reasons why it won't work. And there's 10 <laughs> reasons why it could work. We'll consider this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I have a question for you. There was uh, something going around on Twitter, like right before I came on that I, I kind of jumped in on. I thought it was interesting, and I'm going to just kind of throw this at you last minute. Um, let me find it real quick so I can make sure I get the question right. So our friends uh, Scott Howard and Tyler Sick, they were doing these. Um, it's four books that had a major influence on your political thought. So, John, could you tell me, do you, you know, just off the top of your oh, head, could oh, you I name got some four? Books. Yeah, what are, what are the four books that had your your political um i mean obviously many books so i'm gonna miss them so i i've been thinking about this actually since we had scott howard on and he was talking about books so i i failed to mention um witness by whitaker chambers that was a key book for me on duties by cicero that was a key book for me um now i can't think of uh can't put me on the spot like this i gotta do my get my prep my notes um Yeah, I'm really bad at being on the spot. Why don't you give me your four and then I'll see All if right. I can. My four, they're right back here. Hold on. Uh. All right. Oh, I've got it. I mean, like, okay. So then the other, I'd say they're not really four books, but like key for me was just reading American history, like from cover to cover. So the so Oxford American. Political theory, like your political. I know, thought. but. but 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 I think like you need the foundation in order to understand the theory. Um, yeah, I true. I agree. So I guess it wasn't my my audible. All right. So mine. I've of course, the Federalist Papers. The Disquisition on Government, mm -hmm. by John C. Calhoun. The Spirit of Laws by Montesquieu. It's esoteric right there. And the Bible. I like that. It's a good list. Um, as I'm rolling through my, my Audible list right here, another book that actually kind of off the wall, but it's helped me think about things is The Allure of Battle. That's one I love to recommend to people. Um, 
And that's one where it's just sort of talking about how people get caught up in thinking that a battle is the key. It's going to change everything, but really it's, there's sort of, there's much more to war and uh, so much of modern warfare is just big attrition, uh, big battles of attrition. Um, and I think, you know, maybe that's what we have to get rid of. We have to get rid of the, uh, the history that, that says like, all you need is a, a decisive battle because that's how many, so many people die because we get stuck in big wars where there's never, you know, never ending. I mean, like that's, uh, you know, well, that's World War One in a nutshell. Like that was, we're just like, got to get the decisive breakthrough at this point. And you never got it, and you just kept throwing people in the meat grinder. Yeah. Um, so, I have to think about what the, what a fourth one might be. I'm really embarrassed that I can't just like list them off like that. I have I had so many books I wanted to throw out. Yeah. So, um, Adam Smith, uh, Wealth of Nations, and Theory of Moral Sentiments, which I kind of like. I think you have to read both of those together, in my opinion. Um, uh. Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. I really like mm -hmm. that. I think that's fantastic. Um, David Hume, The History of England. I mean, come on. Uh, not that I've actually read all of that. <laughs> um, it's on I, my actually, list. Actually, was it like uh, the um, another sort of thing out there that's, that's not necessarily political theory on the surface, but is very political? Was the um, it's the Rich, Richard ad or Henry ad? The three. Richard the one, Richard two, Richard three, um, Shakespeare plays like, yeah, that's like dictatorship and power. And I remember reading this, and I think it was around 2016, and all I could think of was like, this kind of sounds a lot like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, just but like you know, like pure power and sort of a willingness to just trample over everything and to stay in power. Um, so those those are good uh, political theory books. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I'm I'm now I'm just now I'm just looking at my books now, just trying to figure out. See, this is why you do prep, you know, you know, no audibles on the show. No audibles, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people on the um had Kirk. Which I have the cons the conservative mind by Kirk. I have that too, but I didn't have that as high on my list. Not you got so I many other great books in there. That's... I mean I don't know, like, I feel like a lot of the books are, like, people's take on politics. Yeah. Like, my books are actually the people that were making, like, they were written by actual people in the government. I mean, not the Bible and not Montesquieu, but Madison, Hamilton, mm -hmm. Jay, Calhoun, you know, they mm -hmm. actually, like, were part of the governing body at some point. Um, and then, you know, the Federalist Papers themselves are unique in the fact that that's like, that is kind of the shaping of it. I almost might throw like the notes from the Federal Convention in there. Um, that definitely has had a, I mean, that like, has shaped that's... my political thought a lot because that is literally like what Congress is, is this deliberative body of like, mm -hmm. you know, going back and forth and trying to like, you know, just talk through the problems until we find an answer so we don't fight about them. And that's, that's what the system is, guys. Talk through yeah. the problems until we find an answer so we don't fight about it and we just don't do it anymore. No, it's tough. I mean, it's, I think things are so polarized that it's it, it requires a uh, a certain level of, of um, disarm, like self-disarmament in order to come into that kind of conversation. And if it's if the other, you know, the person you're trying to de debate or dialogue with doesn't want to do that, like, you know, you're that's part of the impasse too is because you 
make yourself more vulnerable and then they take up their stilettos and they get you where you, you know, get you where it hurts. So like, it's, it's going to be tough to, it is tough to do this because, um, you know, both sides have to be willing to, to sort of retread ideas that they have held closely and maybe give up to something, give up something in it. And, uh, I think most people don't want to give up anything. No, they don't. That I mean, that's kind of the problem too. I mean, we always just like the system is designed for us to work towards our personal interests. Mm -hmm. But starting around the 14th Amendment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the courts afterwards, this the personal interest kind of got lost. The individual got lost. And then it became about the group, but you know, and you may well, think no, it's always, it always is about the group though. There's always the, it's trying to balance the individual interest versus the group. And I think your well, point is that the group became more important than the individual. The, the group became more important to the individual. And the, so specifically with the 14th amendment and, you know, I mentioned earlier with the Lochner era and in the court is this idea of corporation rights, this idea that the corporation had some sort of stake in whatever mm -hmm. um it kind of just it started around that time you know and and people got lost you know it became yeah. you know, there's a book and right it's right here see we the corporations it was we the people and then it became we the corporations after after the 14th amendment which yeah. you know is classic people using their personal interests to manipulate government right because the 14th amendment was not written with the intent of creating a bigger corporate class it was no. written for what john what's the 14th amendment written for uh something about this slavery problem the united states had and <laughs> trying to fix all those how do you like it you know how do you go from you know freeing this you know uh as who was it um grant he called them the free people you mm -hmm. know you go from that to like well, corporations to be able to donate. They should be able to donate money. They should, you know, they have rights. They have, they have things to say. And it's like, they do. The people inside the corporations absolutely have things to say. And they have rights in this country to say them. They don't need more rights to say them. You, you know, <laughs> they're doing just doing just fine with what they got. Well, that's that's also like there's a you could say there's a perverse way to argue it where, well, the corporation hires people, so if we're doing something good for the corporation, we're doing good for the workers of the corporation. So that's that's like the the trickle down almost, if you will, of, of rights where we give the corporation rights and that effectively gives people rights. But in reality, it's not the case because um, most workers don't control what the corporation does; they just sort of follow along with whatever the the dictates from down from the top are. Yeah, we talked about that last week because if the people that are actually creating the power for the corporation have no say in the decision making of the corporation, but the corporation is using that money that is generated by those people to hire or you know pay representatives essentially through campaign finance mm -hmm. um, to be in office and then legislate for them, you know, not the people that are in the corporation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, hey, I got something real quick before we leave. Um, so I'm reading the Bible and 
mm-hmm. I was reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the story of Jesus. It's the New, the New Testament. And I was curious, because I'm not all the way through yet. Is there a point where they talk about Jesus' childhood? No, that's the hidden years, right? That's like the part where there's sort of like the presentation of the temple, the finding of the temple. See, that's, um, what, I, that's what I thought. But too. that's kind of it. But so then and this is my my why I was thinking this is because, you know, you meet Jesus when he's born. And then the next time you kind of see Jesus, he's like, he's Jesus. Like he's the Jesus, you know, he's he's God's son and he's performing all these miracles. And I just wonder, like, what was Jesus like in between those time frame? Because his life must have been hard. I bet his parents mm-hmm. were not fantastic because. His mother was a virgin before having him. He doesn't really have his father, okay? His father is in heaven. So the guy raising him is not his biological father. I bet that was difficult for both Jesus and Joseph. Well, that's, there's a lot of literature on that. I mean, like, um, and they sort of the Catholic tradition, like Joseph accepts the the responsibility of being Jesus' father and and raises him as a son. And Jesus being perfect God can be the perfect child. So I don't think there's actually a lot of pain in there. I think it's actually, there's sort of the tradition in the Catholic church that it's a lot of joy and oh. peace. I mean, like poverty, obviously, because it's, you're just a, a carpenter, sort of a craftsman. I, I think almost like a handyman is what I've been led to understand, like just sort of doing whatever jobs you can um, to support your family and like, you know, doing them well. But I think like there was sort of a, you know, you got to think of like, you got God. So that's perfect. Um, the tradition is that like Mary, had no blemishes and then you know i think in that situation like joseph would have, would have a lot to live up to and would try to do it so like in, in, at least in the catholic faith um we we sort of think of it as like actually a lot of peace and, and happiness as they sort of go through there but it's i think you know it's got to be tough i think there's the bit at the presentation where anna the prophetess says a sword will pierce your heart to mary and she doesn't quite understand it, and it's just like ponder it um i, I imagine the um speaking of like the, what's the one uh, event in Jesus's childhood that we have? And it's where he ditches his parents to go hang out in the temple. Like, you know, there's obviously, there's some kind of uncertainty and for, you know, obviously God knows what he's doing. So um, there's that, but the parent, you know, the parents are kind of blindsided by that from what we read. And so they don't actually know, and they have to kind of trust, you know, trust the system or sort of, so like, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some kind of, um, some kind of conflict there in terms of like God's ultimate plan and then using humans in order to have that plan come to fruition. But I think um, it doesn't have to be sort of a, an antagonist thing. I think if anything, because you, because you are God, you're able to smooth over any, any differences and things. So I, that's, I think that's why the the Catholic church has kind of the more tradition of it was peaceful, happy, um, and sort of a loving environment. When, so when does Jesus know that he's God? Like when does he know? I think I think always because he always know, knows this. I think so. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. I'm still kind of reading through. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're still learning. No. Speaking We're of, speaking learning. of going back to the founding, like I re- I read the Bible myself like three years ago, which is like there was like a daily podcast, and that was the first time I'd ever gone like cover to cover, um, and there was definitely parts that I had never heard before. So like it's it is good to go I, back to the beginning. I have been reading it. I've been reading it cover to cover and I got to say there was a lot of stuff in there. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, 
there's a lot i didn't even know there was like there's there's some books of the bible that i had just never heard of like you yeah. never hear quoted like mm -hmm. you always hear matthew and luke quoted right you hear genesis you hear exodus but how many how often do you hear ruth <laughs> very rarely yeah well, it's in uh, it's in the mass you know every once in a while they throw it in the mass so yeah I was <laughs> it's uh um but no like i mean like that's part of the problem like it is such a big book and to read it in a whole year means you got to take like 15 20 minutes a day to do that so obviously that's a big tall order especially in this modern age where people are so busy so um you know I think more people read the Bible back when they had less things to do, but we get, it's easy to get distracted now. Ah, that, Hey, you know what? I'm adding that to my citizen list. All right. So if you want to be a good citizen, um, only vote, vote in primary elections and only mm -hmm. vote in a general election. If you vote in a primary election, focus on Congress, study the people running for office, make sure you meet them. And then read the Bible, <laughs> or you know, it's key, hey, look if, no, if it's, it's, like it's, if it's not text. your religion, read read something, you know, mm -hmm. whatever, you know. I just, I I I've learned a lot from it, and uh, it's uh, it's it's really interesting story, and mm -hmm. I'm still like I understand where you're coming from with the childhood thing there, but everything that the Bible has taught me is how flawed man is. Yes. And yes, God, uh, Jesus is the son of God, but Joseph isn't. And I just imagine there were some problems at some point. I would just wonder how do, how does the son of God handle that as like an eight-year-old, you know, like, well, so like, <laughs> like, like, if you think about it, it's usually not the initial th problem that causes friction in a family. Yes. It's the response to it. Absolutely. So you got to think like, so, you know, say someone makes a mistake what's jesus's response is going to be perfect so that would help that would help smooth it over and i think that's <laughs> well but see the thing is is like jesus doesn't have to make a mistake for joseph to lash out at jesus no that, that would be that would be the mistake then but then again like what's the response to lashing out it's perhaps docility or something you're saying like yes father you're right or yeah. father you know you know let's think of you know again like we can't necessarily think of it the perfect response because we're just people, but like you got to imagine again, like you got to, you can't put human limitations on God in that respect. So I think I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm more focused on Joseph here. No, I'm, but I'm, again, like, but again, like <laughs> it's, it's in, in, in any relationship, it's, it's, it's always how someone responds to the, to someone else. And I think that's where the, the peace and the, I don't know. I just, I want a book on that. I mean, mm -hmm. we can't go back in time and get it. It's too late now. But I, that would that would be because that's that's none of my favorite parts about reading biographies. Is mm -hmm. like I want you know, it's great. I love what all these people did in their adult years. But what really makes them capable of doing all these things is what happened in that first you know twenty years. Right. Yeah. And so that's you know that's definitely that was the first place that my mind went today when I was like I said I read through mark and part of luke and uh, i was just thinking i'm like I wonder what happened to jesus when he was a who kid who is this jesus guy where does he come from yeah like i mean <laughs> the, uh yeah that's just where my mind went i don't know maybe no, i'm crazy no it's good i mean it's always good to think about like think about that and 
help understand it more because it is more than just what's on the what's on the pages you know like there's it is the story around it and the the context and um like so i got to go to israel a couple years ago and like to you know obviously you get to walk through some of the areas that jesus walked and like it brings things to life even though you know sort of the the he's always just sort of like walking from this town to this town and you like go to that town and then you go to this other town you can sort of imagine him walking through that like it it isn't necessarily technically on the pages but like there's more life to it so i think you know it is good to think about like what's the context for any of these situations and and where we are yeah ah uh, well it was a good show john what do you think good show <laughs> um so thanksgiving coming up this week um john can we take uh we're gonna take next week off right john because it's gonna be next sunday we'll take next sunday off because oh. i know i'm gonna be tired after thursday and friday uh do you do any black friday shopping no but i'm actually gonna i was gonna make a joke saying i'm gonna do black friday shooting but it's gonna be wednesday so i'm gonna just keep <laughs> with my brother um yeah so we'll be off next week and uh we'll be back uh it'll be we still have a week after thanksgiving this week we'll still have a week of november afterwards um because Thanksgiving was like a, a little bit earlier this this year than normal, so we still got one more show for for November, and then we'll be into December, rolling down in the end of the year, back into the, the twenty twenty four elections. Oh man, where are we going? Oh, <laughs> um, so uh, anything to for the people before we leave out of here? Just wishing everyone a happy Thanksgiving, and again, I'm I'm thankful for all my, our listeners and everyone who's tagged along with us throughout this uh, this journey. Absolutely, and uh, I'm thankful for you and being here with me most oh. Sundays. And uh, you know, that's right. I'm sorry, Jeff. I take you for granted too much. I am thankful for you. It's, <laughs> I'm good. And the rest of our but Madison that's hey, that's what Thanksgiving's about: is realizing our blessings and being like, oh yeah, I should be thankful for uh, for Jeff Mayhew and, and everyone. <laughs> All the joy he brings. Um, I'm thankful for you and the Madisonian team and my family and uh, all the listeners out there and readers and the fact that I was able to get published. Some 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 crazy person decided to publish me a few times this year. That was awesome. thankful for that. And, uh, you know, just lots of good things. And uh, Looking forward to some good turkey dinner dinners and some some blessings and seeing family over the weekend. So, yeah, there it is. All right. Well, remember to like, share, subscribe, and as always, peace and love. <laughs>